Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome to OMD Daily. This is the July 20th, 2020 episode, episode 51. Thanks for joining me once again. Uh, today's episode is a learning medley episode. I'm going to talk about three particular things that I found quite interesting that I want to share. So it's a mix once again. Um, no podcast today. They were all more so in articles slash essays. The first one I'll probably talk I'll talk about is more on like a brief notice, not such so much a perennial learning, more so uh, I guess a news related topic. Just learning that Lemonade, the uh, recently IPO'd insurance company, is targeting the pet insurance market, which I found personally to be quite fascinating. So I'll kind of briefly riff on that and then I'll talk about a speech that's been making its way around my um, fintweet, fintweet, fintweet um, circle titled "So you want to be the next Warren and Buffett?" Sorry, "So you want to be the next Warren Buffett? How's your writing?" Question mark. It's a 2007 talk by Mark Sellers of Sellers Capital that he gave to a group of Harvard MBAs, and then finally I'll riff on the story of Les Schwab of Les Schwab Tires and. Once again, this was a contribution made throughout my uh, FinTwit community. So first talking about Lemonade and their foray into pet insurance. So if you're not familiar, I think Lemonade IPO'd, I want to say a couple of months ago. And I think their predom- their main investor is SoftBank, um, if I'm not mistaken. And th- the big theme really is that they're marketing themselves as this new kind of tech focused insurance company i mean which company doesn't do that anymore but i think the whole idea is that um, the insurance industry is just people don't trust it as much Um, the experience is not great which i do not disagree with i um i think that is the kind of overwhelming sentiment that people have and their idea is to just make it completely digital um, make it a seamless experience where people can just buy everything you know online which hadn't been the case before although it's debatable because I was actually in a consulting project where we actually created a digital-only insurance company. So I'd be curious to see how Lemonade um, focuses on fixing this issue or trying to expand in the market because I know the company that I helped create isn't faring as well um, as people had expected or hoped. So we'll see how Lemonade does. But the big, I think, interesting or selling point or newsworthy newsworthy thing is that they're trying to disencourage people from submitting fraudulent insurance claims by, um, I think, using a portion of the um, premiums paid to donate to charities. So the idea is that, yeah, if you do a fraudulent claim, then that money that you receive as part of the fraudulent claim um, is kind of like stealing from a charity. So it's kind of, in a way, trying to guilt trip um I guess, misbehaving consumers to not do that and to disincentivize that behavior. I don't know how much that, how much, how effective that would be given how, if you've kind of committed to, you know, committing fraud, you, I would assume that a, you're just so in desperate need of money 
that you really can't care about a charity or b you you don't really care enough about doing the right thing anyway so would saving a charity that you have no affiliation with really matter i think that's a big question um i've, I've honestly just been quite skeptical of lemonade um i just don't see them having any differentiating factor really but the interesting thing with them going to pet insurance was that they said they were going to uh, price all their products at $12 per month, I think, as a starter. And then they might add, apparently, more to the package based on how how extensive they want the coverage to be. I'm not, I don't think they kind of released yet fully what it would be, but it seems like they've kind of done the soft launch of the pet insurance product. And the way they spoke about it was that it's a new vertical, it's the large market, people spend, you know, north of $75 billion in pets and... If you are familiar with the podcast episode I did talking about Trupanion, the pet insurance um, company in, based out in Seattle, it is a very underpenetrated market. I think less than 3% or 4% of pets in North America have pet insurance. So it's a very large market where um, people spend a lot of money on their pets. I mean... Pet food is a great investment, and the thesis on that has been played over and over and over again. So it's kind of a no-brainer in that aspect, but it's fascinating to see Lemonade come in because, A, they're pricing the products at a much lower uh, rate per month than Trupanion does. I think the average um, cost for a, a product in Trupanion is somewhere around like $50 or something, and their advantage is that they personalize each product so that people who have pets who are at a higher risk will pay more and people who have pets of lower risk will pay less but and the the next biggest competitor which uh, is nationwide i believe nationwide has about 40 percent of the pet insurance market and Japanian has about 20 percent and nationwide can't provide as um, i guess a comprehensive enough service because they they kind of charge what lemonade does which is a flat price and it kind of has it's kind of unfair for certain consumers where your pet might not actually be a high risk but you end up paying more compared to people who have pets that are of higher risk or are in areas that are more expensive um, for veterinary care and they might actually pay a lower price so overall it's just kind of not fair in that system and also the the service that's provided it's not as comprehensive Um, and also the reimbursement process is also very lengthy and very difficult and very kind of arduous which Trupanion kind of has also overcome with their own kind of seamless digital system that integrates well into the systems that the vets' computers already have. So Trupanion arguably has a pretty entrenched um, position and they are known as a more superior product than Nationwide, which is the larger competitor out there. And then there's something like a dozen or two dozen smaller um, players that kind of make up the remainder. But no major, I'd say, comparison other than Trupanion and Nationwide. And so Lemonade's entrance makes it pretty interesting because first they're coming in with a pretty low-cost product and it seems like they're trying to offer just everything. Um, They'll just cover everything. So it appears to be kind of this giant cash burn approach. Um, I think the big factor also is just I don't know how they will actually make money because generally um, you I mean, the unit economics have to make sense to some point. Like the pricing has to make sense. Like you, if you're just constantly losing money, like when do you ever reach a point where you can um, be profitable? So 
I'd be curious on that. Um, I don't know if they actually have a plan to profitability, but at the same time, it's kind of this version where you have a new market entrant who is completely could who could potentially be completely irrational, where they might be willing to spend billions of dollars. Um, actually, I don't know how big the war chest is. I think they raised something around three hundred million or four hundred million from the IPO. Um, don't quote me on that. But given that SoftBank is also their uh, investor, they could also get a cash infusion from SoftBank in the future, given how much money SoftBank also has, although they are in a bit of a difficult spot too right now, I believe, because they're thinking about even unloading the ARM asset that they have, which is probably one of the more valuable parts of SoftBank. But nevertheless, this entrance of a new competitor that is ready to do some big cash burn and might actually be irresponsible is a pretty interesting development in the pet insurance market. Um, I'd like to see how Trupanion actually fights this company off. And yeah, it would probably be the biggest testament to see which product is better. Are customers just going to go for the cheaper product? My guess is like probably. I think they probably will want to just pay less and just get full extensive coverage, but it's more so than how long can Lemonade sustain that would be the big question. And is their product actually going to be as great? Will people actually be able to get the reimbursements that they want? Um, will it be a seamless process? Will the benefits be good enough um, or more so if the process isn't as great and seamless as Trupanion's, will the low cost be good enough that people are fine to just stick on with it? So I think that'll be the big question. So I thought that was a pretty interesting development that happened um, over the course of the last week or so and something that I'll continuously keep uh, open eye on. Next thing I want to talk about is the speech that I talked about that Mark Sellers gave to a bunch of Harvard MBAs in 2007. And this was floating around on because I think I was kind of I don't know if it was just me, but the community or just the community that I follow all have a similar mindset of just the importance of writing in the investment process. So it turns out this is a pretty famous uh, speech that's been circulating all throughout the main major investment um, blogs, websites, etc. And it's it takes a pretty interesting direction because I think from the get-go, Mark Seller kind of talks about how you know everybody wants to become like Warren Buffett. Uh, Charlie Munger, Eddie Lamper, you know, Bruce Berkowitz, all these kind of very famous uh, value investors. And he practically tells students that, you know, you probably have, have less than like a 2% chance of achieving this status. And his speech is kind of a way of, it's, it's like the Charlie Munger version of kind of looking at the invert inversion theory of it, where he's just fo- he focuses on like why statistically it just doesn't make sense, or it, it's just so hard to near impossible for you to ever become a great investor and how um, education and work experience don't really determine how great of an investor you can be, at least to this, uh, I guess, um, what what would you say, Mount Rushmore style level of investment where, you know, the world knows that you're a top tier investor. And... Overall, I, I, I love the tone of the speech. It's just so honest and so raw. And to me, it just made sense in many ways. Now, some points, I think, are arguable and debatable just because of the view that Mark Seller had. Um, but I also found his background to be quite interesting given how I think he studied at the Berkeley School of Music because he wanted to uh, be a musician. And then he ended up becoming an investor. So I thought his background alone was quite fascinating. And he alludes to that as one of the key ingredients of required, uh, ingredients that you need to be a great investor, which is the ability to think with both the right and the left brain and how um, 
most people who are left brain who are more quantitative will go into finance, but they lack the right brain side, which will allow them to be a creative investor. Hence, they will just end up just making a great living, um, getting paid millions to just perform average. And so I think that's where the dichotomy is. Like he's not saying that you going to Harvard and having great working experience and great education um, will not stop you from being financially wealthy. That's completely separate from being a great investor because there's a lot of people who are really wealthy in finance and investing who are not great investors. Most are not, but they just get paid a ton of money, which just kind of makes the industry, uh, you know, it's just the inefficiency that exists in the market. But the topic is focused on whether you'll be a great investor or not, or like what determines that. And that I think would be more focused on the latter half of the speech. The first half is focused on the idea of economic moats, which would be fascinating for two people who are obsessed with competitive advantages inside companies. And he practically talks about how there's really just four moats um, that he believes are actually structurally durable. And what he defines that as like a structural advantage is something like um, something where if you're competitive, where competitors actually know your secret sauce, where they know why you have an advantage and they still can't copy it, that's actually a structural advantage. It's kind of like the example he gives is about Southwest Airlines in the 1990s and how they just had this amazing company culture that just was ingrained into every employee of customer service, of being um, very cost-disciplined, very frugal, and very efficient. And all the airlines knew it, but they just could not copy it um, for a very long time. And now we have more discount airlines, um, but the incumbents... Knew what, knew what Southwest was doing, but it was just so hard for them to implement it. That could be considered a structural advantage, aka a moat. And so the four things that uh, Seller talks about are the key kind of four moats are economics of scale, network effects, um, IP, which kind of translates into like, you know, intellectual property, which is like goodwill, brand, etc. And then the fourth one being high switching costs. And I think Seller actually worked uh, in Morningstar under um, Pat Dorsey as well, who helped develop the economic moat um, structure that currently exists at Morningstar, which incorporates these four uh, four types of moats. So I think there is that influence for sure. And so he goes into in-depth about each one and kind of gave an example. And that I think is kind of, it's very much obvious like if you studied moats before, so I'm not going to go, that wasn't too new for me. I think the interesting part about the entire conversation was on the seven, I think it was the seven traits uh, that make a great investor. And he notes that they're all just psychological traits. And he his argument is that you're either born with it or you end up developing it really early because of your early kind of childhood environment. And But the fact is that by the time you hit kind of adolescence or like just this early adulthood, it's already kind of ingrained. And so if you're not... It, you don't have the traits to make a great investor by the time you know, like you're in your twenties, early twenties or something. Then it's not something that'll come out later in life. Um, and he says, like, by you know, if experience was the big differentiator, then you would actually think that people in their sixties and seventies should all be great investors, but they're not. You find people who are great investors by the time they're already you know eighteen or twenty. Um, and so there's obviously indication that there's a number of uh, psychological traits that are required to be a great great investor. And I, I definitely do agree with a large part of the seven traits that he talks about. I think the few that I think um, really stood out for me was uh, one being the obsession trait, where you just need to, uh, you're just so obsessed with thinking about stocks and like just investments in general, where um, even when you hang out with other people, like you're not thinking about 
um, the conversation, like your mind's elsewhere thinking about stocks. Um, you, and he just points about how you just can't learn to be obsessed about something. Like you are either obsessed with something or you're not. And yeah, I think like in my experience, I've seen, I've you know worked with people who just were so focused on certain investments. And I think that was such an admirable thing. And for me, that was an indication, I think, that I would not be a great investor, especially doing it the way that traditional like value investing is done, because I met people who were just so much more into it than I was, um, which made me want to go out and find my own style. And who knows, maybe even then, like that might work, not work out. But I think that obsession part is very key, where by any kind of traditional metric, like if you're not obsessed about investing, then it's just so hard to be a great investor that continuously you know, generates like 25% annual compounded returns for decades on decades. And yeah, I think that's kind of also the view to think about where it's, he's not saying that you can't make, you know, 40% or even, you know, 20, 20% for like a five year period or a 10 year period, which is the same as one business cycle, but to be an actual legendary great investor, you have to be able to do it for decades on decades, which is kind of how, people like Buffett and Munger kind of have their status. So that's something to consider, this obsession quality. And like asking yourself, are you really obsessed? Like, are, are you truly obsessed with this thing? And also then asking kind of on a more broader career spectrum, like what are you actually obsessed about? Because people, I think, naturally are obsessed with a few things. And you have the big important thing in life, I think, is to try to identify that. Um, a next thing, another thing is on just conviction in ideas um the ability to actually not only be this um to stand by what you believe in despite the public perception and how public um reacts and sticking to your guns about it but also betting accordingly to that and i think a really fun example he gives is about how um if you think about mathematically using the kelly criteria and the kelly formula a person who takes a two percent position in uh stock slash business is considered the mathematical impact of that is, is equivalent to betting on a stock having only a 51% chance, 51% chance of going up and a 49% chance of going down. And he alludes how then that's such a, like, isn't that such a huge waste of time to have so such a low conviction and an idea that you're only investing 2% um, and you think that's an actual investment. But the reality is that it's the bet you're actually placing uh, implies that you're highly uncertain about the investments. So then why are you even doing it in the first place? And how that's, I think, what it leads to why a lot of great investors are very concentrated. And that is in line with kind of the conviction that they can have in their ideas to bet big. Um, and conviction is in a lot of different ways, right? Some people have one, like, you know, two, three stock portfolios. Uh, like Munger constantly focuses on that. Says you should only have maybe two to four stocks. Some people might have 10, but still it's a constant focus on concentration. And the ability to concentrate on a position kind of it's dependent on your ability to have conviction um, with your own ideas internally and also um, to be able to stick with it despite what the external world would tell you. And another thing that I'll, the last thing I'll talk about is just the importance of writing. And he kind of, and this is why I ended up reading the speech to begin with, but on how a lot of the best uh, investors and slash even business people in the world are great writers. Uh, you think you think about a lot of great CEOs and investors like um, you know Bezos, Mark Leonard, you know Bezos running Amazon, Mark Leonard running Constellation Software. Like these are people I consider to be pretty solid CEOs. Um, you look at Buffett. You look at a lot of great other investors who write pretty amazing shareholder letters. And 
they're all very, um, they're also great at their craft, whether it's investing or running a business, which in essence is investing. You're just investing people and capital and time. Um, but he also just talks about how that's so important because if you can't write clearly, then it means that you can't think clearly. And so if you can't think clearly, you're in trouble. <laughs> um, and his idea is that you have to be able to articulate everything and write things down clearly. And, and so just being able to compute things fast is not good enough. And so those are kind of the big things I took out from this speech. I think it's it's pretty short. Um, I think it's only six pages worth of content. And I have the links, obviously, in the show notes, like always. So definitely check it out. I highly recommend it um, if you just want to learn about just the idea of being an investor in general. I thought this was pretty valuable. Um, just another nugget to have in your arsenal. And then um, finally, I just want to talk about uh, Les, Les Schwab of Schwab Tires. I, when I first saw this article on uh, Twitter, I thought it was about um, Charles Schwab, but I realized that it's actually about a tire company that is kind of predominantly in the northwestern um, U.S. region. And I think as of 2020 or 2019, um, this tire company had about $1.8 billion in sales across some like 500 locations. And so what's interesting about the tire company? So the article that I ended up reading, uh, I think it's a little dated. Uh, it might be in like the 2000s, the early 2000s. And it's about the founder, Les Schwab, who founded this tire company in 1952 with like something north, of, just north of $11,000 um, in capital that he had from a loan from a brother and like selling his house. And he built this kind of tire empire that, um, at least during his reign, um, was a dominant know 50 percent plus market share player in many other regions that they operated in and the most interesting thing for me was on his focus of investing in his people like he constantly believed that you want to train your own sales managers to make the people that work under them successful because if you make everyone who works under you successful then you will be successful as a result and he kind of walked the talk in that speak so for example uh, apparently when Les Schwab was running the company, he would make it so that the store managers who ran each of the various um, locations, like the storefronts where people come to get these tire repairs and repairs on the cars, these store managers who ran it would actually make more than people at head office at times. Then Schwab's argument for that was that these people are the ones who are actually bringing in the money and the people at headquarters are the people that are spending the money. So therefore, people in the front should actually be making more money than the people who are spending it in headquarters, which seems so obvious, but it's just not the case now because you think about it and the people at headquarters, the execs who make the decisions make the most amount of money. But Schwab's uh, view of it was that people at the front need to be incentivized to know that they can make more than people um, in the back in the headquarters just based on what they can do. And so he instituted many different things. Um, one was that he had a profit sharing plan where that practically incentivized store managers to be able to take a good chunk of the income that was generated. And so they commonly made more than $200,000 a year constantly. And he also had a profit sharing plan for the entire kind of company where apparently he believed that because everyone in the company was helping generate the profit, they should all get a piece of it. So something like 51% of profits was actually distributed to all the employees um, and the rest kind of being retained with the owner and the company itself for the investment so that was also very fascinating and this kind of continues to like how they even had a uh, i think it's got like employee trust that 
employee like retirement trust that grew to something like $330 million for the employees so that they could have a pension um, after retirement so that the company is constantly just focusing on taking care of its people. And I found that to be very, uh, not just heartwarming, but for me, it was, these are the exciting things to that fascinated me about business and just how people run companies. And this was just one particular example of a small tire company started by this orphan, uh, orphan's child. And it started from very humble beginnings um, and grew to something like 500 locations. And it's like a constant focus on um, making people, like incentivizing people to do better, do more qu- high quality work, um, but also creatively, not just giving out handouts and just, you know, giving them more money, but incentivizing, incentivizing them to earn their keep. And that's what uh, Schwab constantly talks about um, in this kind of particular article that I read. So I thought this was a pretty interesting uh, case study on the individual and the company that many people probably won't know about or ever hear about. So this was a pretty interesting thing to note. And yeah, I hope these were interesting. Um, This might have been a new set of learnings to brighten your day. And a little kind of announcement um, for the rest of the week. I I realized that um, at least the last few days I've been feeling quite burnt out and I definitely haven't been having been have been able to sleep well so i think it's kind of time for me to uh take stock of that and take a bit of a break so i'm going i plan to actually take a week off of producing podcasts at least for the rest of this week so and i hope to be back by next week uh, a little more recharged and uh ready i think there's definitely been a lot of thoughts um that i've been having in terms of how i can make this more sustainable how i want to kind of build the podcast out and not to mention just what i what direction i should be taking to build up my career in the realm of people development and investing in people Um, because I'm still trying to figure it out. This podcast is just one way for me to figure it out. So um, that's just kind of the point that I'm at. And yeah, like when I look at other people who've been able to churn out like daily podcasts, like, uh, you know, the tech meme podcast, or if I look at the software engineering daily podcast, like it's, or even like, you know, Ben Thompson, a strategy who has a daily content that he pumps out, like it's super impressive. And especially like how Ben Thompson has like, pretty in-depth stuff that he pumps out daily I think it's very admirable and yeah I it's just for me um, I need to learn how to uh, make it more sustainable and have a better process and also think about what uh, more kinds of content I want to produce what research I want to do and also trying to figure out how to balance quality and kind of meeting personally set deadlines that I have for myself Um, and also figuring out the bigger question of is this really what I should be doing right so just been thinking about all that over the weekend and i think i've just been yeah just to be frank just kind of burnt out and tired and so i figured this is probably a good point to take a break and so i hope to have be back on with a new episode uh next week and yeah thanks for tuning in and thanks for also understanding uh the break i need to take for myself okay take care